0: Oh, <sighs> so I was all set up to record this cheery, like, hey, subscribe to our Patreon because the the blah, blah. And then fucking Schoology. I got another email from Schoology. This is not an advertisement from Schoology. I actually sort of hate them about missed assignments. So instead, you're going to get the real me. Hi. Uh, so I have a lot of exciting episodes coming out on Patreon. For just $5, you can get tips on how to stay sane during college application for you and your kid, expert advice on growing your band from a pretty badass media strategist, Uh, an explanation of the controversy of DNA and whether the use of it to solve crimes is actually an invasion of privacy, A closer look at New York's epilepsy colony that really lasted much longer than it should have. Think like 70s, 80s, as in 1970s and 80s, where treatment meant actually you're just stuck here for the rest of your life. And also an early release of a two-part episode where I speak to a psychologist who only learned that her husband was leading a double life when he turned up dead. So... Subscribe to the Patreon at the $5 level if you want to hear any of these episodes. Thanks for listening. <sighs> Text me if you hate Schoology as much as I do. Ugh. My name is Dr. Lindsay Wisner. I'm a psychologist, author, a mom, and still an occasional shit show. You're listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. This is a place for smart, sweary women to talk about stuff that matters, stuff that can make us uncomfortable, but stuff that helps us to learn and grow and be okay with living in that discomfort of not knowing the right thing to say or do all the time. Thanks for listening. You can also find me on Instagram at psychshrinkmom or at neuroticnourishment.
1: Hello, I'm Dr. Jan Canty, and I'm here to tell you about my new book entitled, Survival Guide for Coping with the Homicide of a Loved One, due to be released in the spring of 2022 on Amazon. As a psychologist and homicide survivor, I understand the need for useful information, a kind of roadmap of what to do when tragedy strikes. While this book is not designed to be the only source of information for homicide survivors, and their friends who want to help. It does cover a lot of territory. Survivor Guide for Coping with the Homicide of a Loved One wrestles with practical but tough topics like the death notification, funeral planning, the over or under involvement of the media, procedures of the criminal justice system, the tough task of crime scene cleanup should you do it yourself or go with a pro, a chapter on grief in children, dealing with the parole system, and more. There's also several pages of resources and an extensive glossary of terms. Written in easy-to-understand language with space to jot down important information, this book covers the basics. Please look for updates on www.jancanty.com, won't you?
0: Hi, Jan, I just talked your head off, pre recording for like 20 minutes. Um, for which I kind of apologize, but I'm, this is also kind of like, uh, so you wrote a book, A Life Divided, about, um, I want to say it's a horrible story, and it is, but it's also your story, and I don't want to label that, um, but about your experience as a psychologist, married to a psychologist, Discovering that your husband was living a double life, and I feel like when I was younger and would like go to a bar and people would find out I was a psychologist or going to be a psychologist, they'd assume I was a psychic. Uh, no, um, but so people, you know, form these impressions of who we must be to be psychologists, and you know, I I can imagine. Either verbally or non-verbally, when this first happened, some people might have been like, "Well, how didn't you know?" Oh, is that false or true?
1: Yes, that's so true. That's yeah,
0: I, I that's hate very those true. People for you, that's where I was going with it. Sorry, I hate those people for you um, because uh, my very minuscule story is like three years after I gave birth to my son, I realized I had some serious postpartum shit. Like I used to open blinds to let me know it was morning and Mm. close them as a sign that it was nighttime because babies don't sleep. And it took me years to look back and go, huh, I didn't get that, which is much smaller and different um, than what you went through. And I am so grateful you agreed to come on and to tell your story. And, um, you know, and I also feel badly. I feel badly for what I imagine was like a subtle subconscious blame put on you. And
1: And, I did it to myself too.
0: Well, I mean, we're our own worst enemy, which is what I tell everyone.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) but, but yes, because we, you know, we have degrees and so,
1: right. We're supposed to know everything.
0: I know. Um, but in the book, you mentioned that you had the honor of meeting Albert Ellis. Um, yes. Okay, I know no one else knows, but I got to say this anyway. But I was trained uh, in Hornayin theory. And, you know, uh, by um, Karen
1: Hornay was one of my favorites coming up in the field. I loved her books. I love how she was a pioneer.
0: She was a pioneer she was badass We used to go out drinking with the boys and like you know i i love her and um technically i don't have my postdoc because i'm one class short and it's it's in the city and i'm in the suburbs um but uh and i don't practice that way but i think that way um Mm -hmm. and so talking to you to me after reading all this about you feels sort of akin to getting to meet Albert Ellis, um, not because of theory, but because of survival. Uh-huh. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Um, where do we want to start? Uh, you know, I'm in New York, um, you are not. Um, and so, I mean, this all happened in Detroit. Detroit is a big city. Uh, it was a pretty big dirty city in the 80s, um, by the way, so was New York. We had 18 detectives for like millions of people and we have many unsolved murders. And, but in particular, you talk about, um, uh, jive. Uh, mixed jive. Um, yeah. Thank you. Mixed jive. Um, uh, I'm winding it all together. How'd you meet Al?
1: I was working for him while he was writing a small book and I was typing it And he eventually, I was doing it on my own time. I was a student and he eventually uh, invited me in to be his receptionist as well. And I worked on the book while I was his receptionist. It came with a pay raise. So I said, sure. And then I moved downtown to be quite near the office and near where I went to school, which was right in the heart of the city.
0: You were in, you were, I think you were 19, if I'm remembering correctly.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Okay.
0: Uh, I told you numbers, not my strong point, but I'm, uh, you know, it's important. It's important. Like you were 19. Al was already an established therapist. He was 18
1: years older than me.
0: 18 years older. Yeah. Um, Which I think at 19 is kind of alluring, both Mm -hmm. the intelligence and the experience and uh, his ability to act as a supportive guide from what I got from. Yeah, he
1: was, he was the first one in my life that really encouraged me to go to college and gave me the, you can do it attitude. Nobody in my life had ever done that. And that includes school counselors, my parents, anybody. My parents were well-meaning, but their advice was just do what makes you happy. You don't have to go to college. And they had never been. And then my school counselor, you know, you gotta remember this is back in the 60s would basically say, well, you know, why don't you be a typist? Why don't you be a nurse? Why don't you be a teacher? And I didn't want to do any of those things. Sure. So uh, sure. I was lost, basically. I knew more of what I did not want to do than what I did want to do when I left high school.
0: Which is funny because you briefly ended up being a typist. You
1: know? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it is true, but I did it out of necessity.
0: Um, and so that helped you. And so you were living in
1: Detroit, in
0: right, in right. A, a crappy I hope my language doesn't bother you. Um, I have kids. They know not to swear in front of daddy or teachers. So, and they (laughs) whisper swears to me. So it's okay. Um, uh, Again, A Life Divided is the book. I'm going to stop promoting it, but I want to promote it because uh, as soon as Jan sent it to me, I was emailing her obnoxiously like every like three days. And I think I finished it in a week, maybe Um, it's your writing is beautiful your story is beautiful i just don't want to use the word tragic although it is um so you met this man he was and here we get to the fine line between fact and fiction we knew he had been married before right but what he told you and what you later came to find out the truth was were two different two
1: different things right and it made sense if you knew his parents. I was never close with my in-laws. His father called himself a psychologist. He was bachelor's trained. He worked for the police department back then. Of course, it was it was certification. It wasn't licensure, so it was a little more squishy in terms of what you could get away with. He was a very domineering, imposing person. I never quite cared for him really. Uh, blusterly in his personality imposing and, and his mother was <laughs> kind of like a, a teetotaler. and and she was she was educated but always superficial and formal I never saw her in pants we never would have a barbecue it was always you know china and crystal and silver for dinner and she just kept heaping food on our plates and and then sat there and watched us eat and then was disappointed no matter how much we ate. And it was just, I felt like I was an interloper and I was never a member of the family. You he are. was their only child.
0: It's, yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like, I also think only children are, oof, I wanna say weird, but that's awful. I just think, I, I, that's not true. I think when you have a child and you see the love, if you can have another child, and then a companion for your child i mean mine are 26 months apart and thank god they can entertain or kill each other at their own time Mm -hmm. um i so just for the audience not only did i read jan's book a life divided i also read um i had huge problems tracking it down because i don't kindle or audiobook because i'm a visual learner um but uh there's a man named lowell caulfield who was a I get the feeling he was a budding journalist and he wrote a book called Masquerade, A True Story of Seduction, Compulsion, and Murder. And I will say the one thing that was nice combining these two was the description of Al's parents. Um, Also, I am what I call a PTA whore, where I don't know how to turn down the parent-teacher associations at my children's school. And so I end up getting stuck in multiple positions and one of the most interesting, no, no, everything's interesting. Um, But I was, I was really struck by also everything's awful, um, but for you, Uh, but I was really struck by the fact that uh, Al's mother was very involved in PTA and not just at a local level, but at a more. Mm
1: -hmm. She was the um, head of the PTA board.
0: Right. We call that central council here. So I don't know what oh. called, but no, but that's what I'm saying. Like, le- you leveled up. And so, and the great story that I read in both books about um, Al senior was when this man without a degree went and said that uh, essentially I'm paraphrasing. You can correct me. Sexual deviance were the result of neurotic mothers at Mm -hmm. a pta meeting yeah (laughs) i have been at some pta meetings where i have heard absurd things um and i'm the first one to go wait what Um, and
1: that that was back in the 50s that he said yeah
0: um also oh my husband um my husband's a lawyer and a psychologist and he used to and he's you know but he used to work extensively with um with, uh, you know, like forensic, uh, particularly sexual offenders or um, pedophiles, and so when I read that, I was like, I have so many questions here. <laughs> um, it's, it sounds like made up science, which now we're familiar with, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, but just that family must have been.
1: It wasn't comfortable, and especially when I came from a family that was so different. I came from a boisterous family with a lot of interactions with extended family. We had a great time. We told jokes and we weren't formal at all. We got together a lot. We laughed a lot. We argued a lot. I mean, in a a way that was debating. That's what I mean by that. Everybody could have their own opinion and we'd laugh about it and I mean, I was a kid growing up in this, so it was second nature to me by the time I was an adult. And to go from that to feeling like I was in a museum when I was at their house. I
0: want to clarify, you said argued a lot. That's debating. There's a difference between that and what you witnessed in Al's house.
1: There yeah. was no dissension in his house. Everybody was on the same page.
0: But now, also, other, it sounded like there was a lot of hostility.
1: There was, it was unspoken. It was tension.
0: Um, and so here you are, and so you meet him at nineteen. You start working for him. Your role grows bigger. He's getting you more money. Fantastic. You need someone. I mean, no disrespect to your parents. who you sound wonderful. Um, I would never go home to recover from any illness to my parents. So I, mm-hmm. you know, um, which will become relevant. But you meet someone who actually believes in you, encourages you, supports you, and. And money doesn't appear to be an obstacle. It it seems like he's got your greatest interests at heart.
1: Mm -hmm, It did.
0: Um, I kind of want to ask you a stupid question. Stupid only because I'm sure you've been asked before. (laughs) Was there an early sign, inkling, gut of maybe this isn't the
1: man for me? No.
0: I didn't think so, no. um, largely because I know you proposed to him.
1: I did. We'd been dating for about a year and- He had I, just
0: introduced you to Albert Ellis if I'm remembering correctly.
1: Yes, he had. He took me I to I would New York. probably
0: propose to him too.
1: <laughs> I'd never been to New York before and it was a beautiful uh, weekend that we spent there. He, I felt like a queen the way I was treated and it was the first time I'd ever flown. Uh, we stayed at the Plaza Hotel
0: beautiful yeah
1: and it was just a whole nother life that I'd ever only it was like something you'd see in a movie set I'd never experienced anything like that and he believed in me and that made a huge impression on me he was my backer and he did He, he that was genuine he really felt strongly I could and I should succeed in graduate school but I think the thing he did not count on was that I would go on to get a PhD and then go on to get a postdoctoral fellowship and then go on to disagree with him in the way he approached cases.
0: I think the postdoc was.
1: That was the final.
0: Right. Yeah, right. That was Like the, the nail in the coffin. You know, when I, we spoke about this a little bit, but when I met my husband, uh, it, I think what drew me in besides the fact that he's kind of hot and really smart and funny uh and our first date was like 12 hours and I refused to go home with him because I'm a lady and I think that was what did him in oh and then I told him I was Jewish and that was what did him in um but uh, p.s uh he's one of four and I'm the only actual Jew so I win um but it was actually a feeling of like unconditional acceptance I don't Unconditional love is a, a fuzzy thing. I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to wade through my cloudiness on unconditional love, but there was an unconditional acceptance that no matter what I had been through, the person that I am was a, is a result of that. And moving forward, he would support me in being anything that I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told you before we started, that's sort of how I definitely found myself relating at various times but I did not throw the book at him or accuse him of anything, which I think I deserve credit for. (laughs) Um, So uh, you proposed, you, uh, you were married, you were so much and are so much hotter, What? I'm going to go with were because, you know, we can't actually judge my remains, but uh, you were gorgeous. You are gorgeous, (laughs) but like, you know, I, I, I looked at the pictures like eight times, but it's about finding that person that fills whatever need you're missing, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. I do not
0: too. not judging your parents, just giving my my own experience, my own perception. Um, I feel like things were fine for the first nine years.
1: They were, well, yes and no. They felt fine for the first nine years, Thank but you. I learned in retrospect, He was starting to be unfaithful, at least by the third year. Tell me
0: about that, because I I think I'm blanking.
1: Um, When I had to, it's kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but when I had to go ID his body at the morgue, Detective Landeros told me that they knew it was him because they had previous fingerprints on him from an earlier arrest with a prostitute, dating back to what would have been our third year of marriage.
0: I need you to help explain um, uh, the the Detroit scene, the prostitutes that, um, you know, I mean, there was a Chinese restaurant nearby. Where out. What is it called? Chung's. I could have made that up. So thank you. <laughs> um, uh, and you hated when he went there because it was a dangerous location, but you know, it was quote unquote the best
1: Chinese food.
0: Listen, there are two restaurants people go to in my neighborhood, and they claim to are the best. And frankly, they're mediocre. It's just that everyone goes there, so I might go to Chung's if it was. Except that I don't like Chinese food, but um, mm-hmm. but if we look back, obviously, and you know this from working with patients and and probably obsessing over your own, you know, history. If we look back, things are so much easier to see.
1: Yes, true.
0: Uh, so later you found out that it was that third year of marriage when he first uh, stepped, no, when he first got caught for stepping out.
1: Right, we don't know how soon it started.
0: Okay, I, I didn't know, I didn't know if you did. Um. Whoa. Is there something that, is there like a correlation between something that was happening to you during that third year?
1: Oh, let me see, where was I? at that point in time i would have been starting my master's degree
0: so maybe maybe i'm maybeing with you i mean i feel like we're two two shrinks just trying to dissect possibilities. i
1: had you know there's question one of the things i have had to accept is that there are many questions i'll never know the answer to Uh because he's not here to ask and data it's hard to come by this is back before the internet when this all unfolded his mother was certainly no source of accurate information i
0: know what is her name and again i forget
1: gladys gladys Yes. Gladys candy
0: i just i think yeah. i voluntarily forgot because yeah
1: um she, she she was not easy to be with i mean although she's one of these individuals that from the outside looking in people would have been envious oh she's a great person and she was well educated. She was uh, gracious. She was interested in my education. Those were all pluses. Yeah. But, but I, I found it effortful to be with her because it, everything was so formal all the time. And I, I didn't want to disappoint her. I didn't want to overstep my bounds. I never called her mother. I, I never, because she's not a mother to me. My mom's a mother to me. And she wasn't like my mom. My mom was wonderful. Um, so it was my dad. I was lucky that way.
0: Um, at my baby shower, uh, you know, when you're opening gifts or whatever, I opened a gift and it was chocolates. I'm not a big chocolate fan, white chocolate. Fine. Just don't like, it. uh, and then it said love mom and dad. And <laughs> I was totally confused because this was not my parents' illegible handwriting. Um, I, and it turned out at this exact public moment, my, my in-laws had chosen to go by mom and dad and never again. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, so a part of me definitely felt this connection with like, we're trying to make things look pretty.
1: Right. Um, Right. The window display family.
0: That's a great way of putting it. Um, so you were getting your masters and then I don't want to tell your story for you because I'm just remembering it the way I um the way I the way I read it, the way I put it all together. But so um I think I feel like mono is the next.
1: Yeah, I got real sick in my postdoc. It was the third time I got mono. And each time How I was
0: possible, I you can get mono three times.
1: It never goes away once you have it. Once you have it, you have it. And it's just a matter of if your immune system gets weak enough, it pops back up. And it was, I mean, I was stressed out. I was in my postdoc, I was commuting. I was, it was a tough population I worked with. It was the inner city of Detroit. I was working in a medical center alongside physicians, training them part-time in their bedside manner, as well as seeing patients myself. So there was a lot going on, and I just couldn't get past it this time. I was sicker all the time from it. And my physician finally said, look, either you go to the hospital or you go visit your parents in the desert because they lived in Phoenix. And right, which out. is
0: crazy that there's an option B. I mean,
1: I know. I thought, well, I'm not going to the hospital. Hell no. So I flew out. He got me a first-class ticket. And I flew out there and they took care of me. And that was the only time I, I felt that regressed as an adult. When I got off the flight, they were like, I was just a pile. And they put me to bed and let me moan for a few days. I had such a bad sore throat and so on. And, and after being there 10 days, I started to bounce out of it and got my, my, my appetite back, got my energy back. And this was around Christmas time. And eventually said, I'm ready to go back home. I had an open-ended tickets, so I could go whenever I wanted. But I also was in my postdoc and I didn't want the hours to be just added on to the end. I mean, I know. you know, the meter was ticking, right? So I wanted to get back as soon as I was physically able to do it, even though it was wonderful being in 60 degree temperature in the middle of winter. I didn't mind that a bit. Uh, but in my absence is when he, it was his birthday uh, at that point and his mother gave him $500 it was, and his, it was his 50th, 50th right. birthday and she said to him you're a big boy now and she gave him $500 for his 50th birthday
0: I mean I feel like as like fans of analytic psychotherapy we could look into that
1: I know I know
0: I mean I'm I'm we don't have to because half of my listeners will not understand that but um but I just want you to know that Uh, that was seen like i saw that and i
1: well that and when she directed we we sleep in the not master bedroom in our house i thought that was weird right what was behind that she just wanted to keep him it was kind of a parallel i think stepping backwards she wanted to keep him infantilized in the same way he did me
0: um and that's probably where he learned it from he was also an an only child and she called him either buster, buster or bus, bus.
1: which yeah. i don't know which is worse after buster brown i know
0: no if i I, want... I got that reference uh, but 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 still did he look like buster brown
1: not at all but she wanted him to when he was a child she dressed him like that and grew his hair to his shoulders like that
0: yeah my s- almost 13 year old doesn't care what he where is he like my son my husband has to be like you wore a gray shirt two days in a row a row and I'm like I don't I don't give a, you know like whereas my daughter has definite fashion and opinions mm-hmm. um but uh but it is it is weird and as as described it I don't say weird it doesn't sound constructive and as described in your book it's like he had to fit into this role he doesn't seem to have a lot of experience among, he doesn't have a lot of interaction among children. And I don't want to overstep, but like, uh, as we're talking now, I'm wondering if it ever occurred to you that maybe there was some sort of, I don't want to say abuse, but like near abuse or like adult to child inappropriateness.
1: On, In his family, you
0: mean? Yes, like uh, with him as the victim based on how he interacted with people as needing to be the the
1: I think what it was is he was always trying to prove himself. They sabotaged him, they put him down. His father, I did not ever hear this, but his father was I had been known to berate him at his father's work setting if he showed up and I don't know what it was all about. It was before I even knew him. So it was, I think he walked a fine line of always trying to please, always trying to be better than he thought he was. And, you know, there's that, when you grow up feeling like a phony, you're always trying to prove yourself. And I think that was a lot of what was going on with him.
0: Okay, but what are your feelings about imposter syndrome? Because I hate that word. I also um, hate the word triggered, but that's because how do you deal with PTSD? You,
1: you know, right?
0: You relive it. Um, uh, but so you can have a different opinion than mine. I'm not going to insult you. <laughs> um, but I, I imposter syndrome, I feel like is self esteem that we all struggle with. But in this specific case, I can see there being like, room for that to be the
1: issue. Yeah, I think there was. Ironically, I think he really was a half-decent psychologist. I'm not saying he was totally ineffective, but I think there was a part of him, you know, there's this old concept, I don't even know if they talk about it anymore. It's called the Peter uh, Peter Principle, where if you surpass your self-esteem, you will sabotage. And that's what I think happened with him. You, you, like, can, you can like, only go as far as your self-esteem allows you to. And if you go supe- past that, you will find a way to, to sabotage it and go backwards.
0: That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, the Peter um, Principle. It was big years ago. It's, I date myself. But, but at any rate, I think there, he became increasingly concerned that I would see through him, too. Because I had more education than him But at the end. And I was, I always kept up to date on things. He had never done much of that. This is back before CEUs were required. So he'd, he'd fallen behind and he wasn't keeping up with continuing education. I was, and, and I, would, I would challenge him in a nice way, but I'd say, well, what about neuro-linguistic neural data? Or what about neuroplasticity? And he'd be looking like, I don't believe in that. And I'm like.
0: Uh, do you know that New York just instituted CEUs No. yeah, I've been,
1: I I thought that was a long time ago.
0: I graduated in 2000, let's say five or six. I forget when, you know, because of all the requirements and my husband a year earlier. And this is the, in the middle of a pandemic, they take away our plastic bags (laughs) uh, and then they they mandate CEUs. um, Mm I I actually got my yoga teacher training during this. And so I'm probably going to be able to use part of that, but like, we haven't had that, you know, I've been Mm. practicing for 2021 minus 2005 or six years. And we haven't had it. I mean, which I teach classes to kids online. I write for psychology today. I, I have kept up with things, but the mandate is, is the issue. But so it's, you know uh yeah i kind of wish i'd been grandfathered in but i'll figure this out but but it is interesting the difference that time makes
1: yeah so, so yeah so i think yeah that was an issue and that's when things really came to the surface and fell apart because i think he didn't know where to turn i was no longer a admirer in the way i was years earlier I no longer believed everything came out of his mouth in terms of psychology, the way I did earlier. And keep in mind, I was coming into my prime physically and he wasn't, I think it all came to a head. And I, I don't think it's any coincidence at all that it all came to a head when we were going to join practices. Yes, That was our goal for years, but now it's on the threshold of it. It's a reality. And I we had even gone so far as to pick out an office suite that had adjoining offices in it and decorate it. We hadn't 100% moved in, but we're really close to it. And that's when the shit hit the fan.
0: Well, it was that, it was his 50th birthday. Thank you for yeah. swearing. So I feel like I'm not alone, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so you had been suspicious, no, you had been, I've been worried. on edge,
1: yes. I knew something was, he was very preoccupied, a little irritable, which was different for him. He would spend an enormous amount of time soaking in the tub or being in front of the television and working 24-7, it seemed, and, and, and helping his mother, who was a widow by then. So that I had felt like I almost needed to make an appointment to see him, that I needed a control tower to keep track of his schedule.
0: Well, yeah, iPhones, too bad, but,
1: you know. Yeah. So... It was, I felt squeezed out. I never suspected what truly was happening. But I just thought maybe it's his health, you know, maybe he's not feeling well.
0: Which would make sense, um, because of the age difference and what we think you were 32. Yeah. See that maybe I can use numbers. Um, Uh You were 32. He was 50 also. I should have remembered that. Um, And so it
1: makes sense to worry about his health. Um, And he was smoking too. And that didn't help his health.
0: Right. Um, And then one of the most, the thing that struck me, and I believe this is how you start your book, um, uh, A Life Divided, is you're driving and you like pull off, you think you're being followed. And so you pull off Mm -hmm. into a side street, which is brilliant uh my other podcast is crimes of long island podcast and i have now taught my daughter to memorize license plates as a result of my paranoia Uh, so perhaps i would do that now i wouldn't have done that six months ago but you know you pull off because you have felt like you are being followed there's other signs too to be
1: clear we've had had hang-up calls and cigarettes, uh, cigarette and, butts. and I found three cigarette butts outside. This is right after, I'd say three four months after he had stopped smoking. I found cigarette butts beneath our kitchen window in in a dry spell. Uh, I mean, in a rainy spell. Sorry, in a rainy spell had just passed, and it was dry that day. I found them, and they were they looked like they were dry themselves. So I knew they could not have been there long because we just had a lot of rainfall previous to that. And I'm like, what the heck? And then it was just like these little red flags coming up that I couldn't piece together the cigarette butts. And then, like you say, uh, that was an issue. And he was working a lot of hours and the hang up calls. And then I was followed. And I, I just felt this, this sense of impending doom, but I couldn't put my finger on what the heck it was.
0: I mean, I'm terrified listening to you talk, about. you know, I got my first cell phone at like the year I graduated uh, college. And so, some of our listeners may not remember like we didn't have well some people had cell phones or power phones or whatever but it wasn't the norm and so if you're driving and something goes wrong you're left to your own yes limits.
1: yes my we did children, not have cell phones then at all they were not no, even on the my children
0: don't understand maps they kind of do but like they're like imagine having to read a map while you're driving I was like it was tough or yeah. uh you know having to print out I had Google maps, you know, like having to print that out so you could follow it. Um, but your, your quick reaction was, you know, to figuring out what to do uh, was impressive. And then I also just, it just occurred to me, the more danger, the more enmeshed he's getting himself in this dangerous life, this dangerous world, suddenly he quit cigarettes?
1: Mm-hmm. I know let's ramp up the tension right I mean (laughs) well I've been bugging him to do it I have been.
0: well I guess it's since he's seeing prostitutes he can give you the cigarette. yeah Yeah. um I want to go back to the uh the jive the street drug street mixed jive jive. I don't know why I can't remember it it's probably (laughs) because the only like I understand like drugs from here to here and then everything else I'm like confused can Mm -hmm. you just explain Jive.
1: mixed jive was something guys. i understand it was not common elsewhere it was pretty common in detroit the active ingredient was rat poison because it gave you a jolt and it was <laughs> as well it should i mean yeah yeah and it made people like crack cocaine does it makes them wired and frantic and paranoid and of course like any other substance they do more and more to get the same effect but uh, the people that al was hanging out with were not strictly drawn to mixed jive they would do heroin crack cocaine whatever was available Qualudes will you name it and he would supply them with it
0: yeah it's interesting um i have anxiety i was diagnosed with adult adhd now that this is a secret i'm perfectly proud of you know the person i've become the idea of doing anything that made me more on makes me more on edge feels Awful too. I've also never experienced that high, uh, nor do I have any interest in it. But it sounds like neither did App.
1: No, he'd never, to my knowledge, ever done drugs. No, he oh. was addicted to caffeine. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. I like whiskey, but you know, <laughs> I like the downers. The upper... Um, so I know both the like. I know what led up to you finding out. And then, you know, how you experienced it. So I'm going to hand it over to you to tell me.
1: Okay. What happened was uh, I gotten this period of time where I'd recovered from the mono and that was in around Christmas time. And the following July, I was watching a three hour special on television. So I lost track of time. That's the importance of the three hour special. It was on AIDS. AIDS was just had just been discovered. There was no treatment for it. And it was a three-hour special to raise funds for drugs in Ethiopia. A, I think it
0: was Hands Across America. Am I remembering wrong? Um,
1: it was Live Aid. Live
0: Aid, sorry. Yeah. And it,
1: all these stars, you know, one after the other. I it remember. was It was simulcast in London. It was a big deal. And I was enthralled with it. I love music, especially from Detroit, mm-hmm. Detroit music. And I was sitting there watching it. And we, he was supposed to come home for dinner. And I lost track of time and I looked up and it was dark. Now it had been a rainy, stormy day. So that part wasn't totally shocking, but still it was like 10 o'clock he should have been home at seven and again, no cell phones. So I'm trying to figure out what the heck. So I called his office, got the answering service. There was live people that answered the phones back in those days. Thank God,
0: because now you (laughs) just have to press a number and no one gets. Yeah,
1: Yeah, right. And so I didn't know what else to do. So I called at midnight, I called my neighbor to take me down to the Fisher building. That's the building where he had his office.
0: Which by the way, I I have a little note somewhere in, in your book. I'm like, wow, I forget. Like there is like a sexism insecurity. I would call a neighbor too, but I'm just saying like to think back to being a young woman in that time. And I'm grateful for your neighbor because it was a dangerous area. It
1: was a dangerous area. To give you an idea how dangerous it was, foreign countries had suggested to their populations to fly over Detroit and not land there.
0: I mean, The year
1: that my husband was murdered, there were 790 official murders. And according to some of the detectives I spoke with, they said, really, it's closer to 900 this year because so many went unreported
0: my ears perked up um in a in a positive way that you referred to him as your husband because I I could imagine there was a lot of anger possibly to work through
1: oh yeah later and so my um my husband didn't come home which was not like him and I I did not want to go down to the Fisher building at night by myself at midnight, even though that's where I used to live, but I would always be in before dark.
0: Yes, but we get smarter as we get older. Yeah,
1: and we didn't find anything. Everything looked in order, and so I came home, and that was the end of that. The next morning, I went back to the substation for the Detroit Police Department that was literally across the street from the Fisher building, and they were very rude. They wouldn't help me. They basically said, well, go check the morgue. You know, it's, it hasn't been 24 hours. So, By the so, way,
0: I'm I'm so excited because I want everyone who ever loses a loved one to do what you did next.
1: So, yeah, I was pretty irritated with them. So I thought, well, okay, if it takes 24 hours, I haven't seen him in 24 uh-huh. hours. So I went to another police station and reported him missing. I was so thing. excited.
0: I read <laughs> that and I had like big highlights. I'm like brilliant why can't we all do that yeah
1: but it didn't help I mean nothing came it was just like he had disappeared basically well he had yeah. and he had and so the days went by and I called my parents and I said could you fly out because I don't know what the heck to do I am lost and they were coming anyway for a visit and I just asked him to come a few days earlier and they said sure so they did and they were only at my house maybe two days I think it was When I got the phone call from a detective, Marlis Landeros, to come down to the headquarters for the Detroit Police Department. And my dad drove, we went down, and she took me up to the homicide division, which was like a big red flag. I went in, I spoke with her briefly, and then she took me into the room to see Inspector Gil Hill, who, by the way, was just finishing his, had just finished his acting debut with Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop 1. He was Inspector Todd. And and he's a lot like that figure in the movie. Very- I, you
0: know, I, w- I meant to, um, I will, in fact, watch it. It's it's like a childhood, you know, memory. But, um, but I also have to say, I love the way you describe and understand the people who were there to help you, guide you, steer you, and not always tell you what you wanted to hear.
1: Mm-mm but I trusted them and they treated me well. And, and there were, they had very few words. And basically Inspector said, Hill said, you know, we don't have the proof yet, but we have every reason to believe that your husband's been murdered. And we don't have a body. If we did, we could do something more, but I wouldn't have you down here if I wasn't pretty sure. And oh, by the way, you should go home and check your finances because your husband's been spotted giving out lots and lots of cash for months down in the Cass Corridor which is like the red light district of Detroit
0: now wait I'm sorry I'm interrupting but we had you I can't remember which I read it in but like I feel like they asked if you had been having financial difficulties
1: and I said I I don't know I said he would never let me touch the money I mean I, yeah. I when, when I was in school and he was handling all the bills I didn't have any income I was glad to let him do it But as I finished and I was about to join his practice and have my own alongside, I wanted more involvement. And he just kept finding one excuse after another not to do that. Like, oh, we'll get to it. We'll get to that, you know, that maybe someday that's a good idea. And I'm like, no, not not someday. Like when I paid the rent, he had me make the check out to him and he turned it into the Fisher building. And And I said, no, I want to write my own check from my own office and turn it into the leasing agent. What? No.
0: Um, And I don't fault you for that My uh, because of my age, our age difference or my laziness or my spoiledness or whatever it was. Like my husband has always been in, in charge of bills. And then I realized, oh, I can't order another movie because he forgot to pay the bill or Sprint will call me or whatnot. So I think that's a learning and growing experience when you start with an older man. And it seems like, thank God, one less thing I have to handle while I'm trying to.
1: That's right. That's how it felt at the time, right? Yeah.
0: I mean, I was
1: driving long distance to commute and, you know, grad school is. It's demanding of every minute of your waking day. And so I was glad to have one less thing. I was trying to take care of this 3,900 square foot house, which is another whole project, which I didn't want anything to do with, but Mm -hmm. it was a beautiful house. But I thought, why do we have six bedrooms? There's two of us. Which is was,
0: an excellent question. for stupid. Yeah.
1: But he had to have it. So I'm like, well, it's your money. If that's what you want, fine. Right.
0: But also he didn't really want kids for what. No,
1: happened. no. And I was neutral on it at the time. I was, I was okay with that because I thought I'm not going to be like a lot of women I saw and try to do both. I yeah. thought that's just too much. It It is, it is, yeah. I want to wait and do it in order. I want to have... I want to travel the world, I want to have my doctorate, I want to be financially secure, and then maybe then, (laughs) but I waited too long and actually ended up not being able to have children, but that was another whole story. So anyway, um, yeah, so that I was watching Live Aid and he didn't come home and Jim Saras took me down there. Nothing came of it, reported him missing, nothing came of that. My parents flew in, we went down to the Detroit headquarters, had that brief meeting, with Gil Hill and he sent me home. And I did look into my finances and I'm like, holy crap. Not only was I broke, we were 30,000 in debt in 1985 dollars.
0: Which, which is I, closer. I, I should have done the math, but yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, it's inflation is staggering how much that money comes to. So we wait and then the media descends which is a whole nother nightmare because they were exceedingly rude and intrusive and invasive and sensitive.
0: Did you find out, so I, I tried to like reading both books and I also was like stalked on the internet. I'm curious as to how much, did you find out about his death from the media or from the
1: police? No, from the police.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm actually really grateful for that.
1: Yeah, me too. Because a week went by and then Detective Marlis Landeros called again and asked us to come back. And by the way, I have to say something about her. She was instrumental in keeping my head together. She was an amazing woman. She was the first woman of color in any authority in the police department, which is still a struggle. I recently had a discussion with a man about that. He said his daughter's a captain in the police department and she's still struggling with it. So that's not going away. And I just immediately liked her. She was professional. She was sensitive to me. She was decisive. She knew when not to talk when I could not take in another piece of information. And I felt like I could trust her that she knew what she was doing. And so she called us back down. We went back down and Inspector Gil Hills said, basically uh, your husband's in the morgue or at least parts of him are and we want you to identify him i mean he was a man of very few words
0: my 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 i just had to like relax my shoulders because i know what's coming and i'm 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 in pain anxiety trauma for you and uh, not in like a demeaning way i'm just mm-hmm. i just want you to know how much your words affect me like i can feel it cringing up so
1: And Detective Landeros offered to drive us. It was only a few blocks. And I said, okay. And my dad offered to do it for me. And she said, no, that that legally that's not going to happen because we need her to testify in court what she's seen. Okay. And so she has to see it. And she tried to describe what I was going to see before I went in. So I'd have a little bit of preparation. It smelled God awful in the morgue. This was in July. This is an old morgue. This was built in the 20s. And from talking with coroners today, there was not the equipment that they need today to keep fumes out. It reeked in there. It was dark. It was echoey. I remember that. And when she came for me to go to inside this area, I could not get up. I, it wasn't that I was willing. It was I could not it my, I felt like I, my legs had turned to iron, like they were weighted down. And my dad Picked me up under one arm, and she'd picked me up under the other arm, and I just felt like a marionette going into the viewing booth. And they had his head there basically, and he had been buried for over about eight days in a bog. That he had been buried, his identifiable body parts had been buried in northern Michigan in Petoskey on the property of the University of Michigan Biologic Station, which is a research facility set aside to study mosquitoes and other uh, decay by having animals deposited there that are roadkill. So it's a perfect camouflage. To It
0: it is, which seems very intellectual for for these people, which which we'll get to in in part two, these people, but I don't know if they lucked out or just
1: someone rubbed together two bring I, I don't think they were stupid. I think they were drug crazy. Uh, and I think that Petoskey was the area where the informant lived. So he knew the area. So they um, that's where he was taken to. And what happened was the man who helped bury his identifiable body parts turned state's evidence. And Al's unid. Identifiable body parts were just thrown on the freeway.
0: And that man was uh, Frank Frank McMaster. Thank you. Um, so, and so you identified him. Yes. And then you had to go home.
1: Yeah. And the media was waiting outside the morgue. And they followed me home. And it, it, every turn I made, they were there. And they would call. And then I started getting phone calls from like Oprah and other shows. And I did not want to speak with any of them. So once my dad was there, I said, would you take charge of the phone in the front door? And my mom took charge of the laundry and the cooking and I was handling everything else. There was so many complications. I had no time to do anything, but try to put out fires. There was financial worries. Did
0: you keep I, working?
1: I wasn't able to, not, not, I, not for I, a while, I'm,
0: no. I'm glad because, no. um, I know that what I do when things get bad is I throw myself into it, and
1: I'm just grateful that you're smarter than I am. And, and <laughs> I am. well, my it was on the advice of my mentor. He said, "You know, you, you, you I got want a mentor
0: like your mentor." I'm he so, was
1: wonderful. I Dr. cried. was wonderful.
0: Yeah, yeah, I cried because um, he does end up passing, and and you describe it in the book, and I actually cried out of both your loss and also wanting a mentor of my
1: own. He is an amazing guy.
0: Um, I want to stop us uh, here because it seems like a good halfway point because we haven't even gotten to the prostitutes. That should be like a (laughs) tagline. So uh, listeners, if you do want to hear the rest of it, please subscribe to my Patreon feed. Uh, It's really worth listening to and I'm so grateful, again. My name is Dr. Lindsay Wisner. I'm a psychologist, author, a mom, and still an occasional shit show. You're listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. This is a place for smart, sweary women to talk about stuff that matters, stuff that can make us uncomfortable, but stuff that helps us to learn and grow and be okay with living in that discomfort of not knowing the right thing to say or do all the time. Thanks for listening. You can also find me on Instagram at psychshrinkmom mom or at neurotic nourishment.